Anybody in here ever do any cooking? Like literal cooking, not metaphorical. Have you ever been cooking something and you're real excited about it, something like maybe one of your favorite recipes, you know your family loves it or you love it, and you get in the middle of it and you're cooking, you got stuff mixed up, the oven's on, waiting for it, and you realize that you don't have one ingredient. And you cannot make what you're making without that ingredient. It's impossible. You can't do it. I remember one time, back, back in the early days of the Jason and Amanda marriage, and I wanted chocolate chip cookies. Just Sunday night, 9 o'clock, I wanted chocolate chip cookies. Amanda's like, I'll go make some. I'm like, this is awesome. This marriage stuff rocks. Better than football. And uh, she said, uh, let me make sure we got everything. We didn't have any brown sugar. Like none. At all. And we didn't have any money to go buy any brown sugar. So guess who didn't get chocolate chip cookies? Poor me. So, that one ingredient, that one thing that you don't have can ruin everything, can it? This morning we're going to talk about one thing. And how irreplaceable that one thing is. Hopefully you know where I'm going with that. But we'll see. Let me briefly recap where we've been. We have been, we're in the second point of our outline <clears throat> in our study of Romans. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm telling you, I am full, full of Romans. And it's a good thing. I mean, it's like stuffed like a tick, like, you know, Thanksgiving type thing. You know what I'm saying? It's like you're full of tryptophan. You're watching football, which is the theme this morning, by the way. Football is the theme. And you just just really full. That's, that's how I feel through this study of Romans. And I, and I, don't, I, I don't know if I've communicated it well enough for you to be that full, but I'm telling you what, I am full. This is good stuff. And to stand and look at this slide that says that we're in the section of Romans right now that's talking about justification by faith, the means for being right with God. It is really, and, and I know there are people here who this Christianity thing is probably just nuts and crazy and stupid. But I'm telling you, this is the greatest thing in the universe. And I mean that. And I mean it literally. This is the greatest thing in the universe. To be justified, to be right with God, it's the greatest thing in the world, the greatest thing in the universe. This is our outline for those of you that haven't been here, that don't know what we're doing. We are working our way verse by verse through the book of Romans. We've got a six-point outline. Um, we've spent several weeks, chapters, well, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 20, talking about sin and the need we have, everybody has, for being right with God. Uh, we're talking today in our second point about justification by faith. We've already talked about that. We'll talk about that for another couple weeks at least. And let me tell you what. When we get into chapter 5, this building is just liable to fall in. I mean, it's just, it's just too much for us to contain. I, and again, some of you may be saying, this guy's just hyperbolic. I'm not. Well, okay, I am. 
but not about this. This is, this is so incredible. So what we're going to look at today is a review of where we were last week. We went to Asian Station. Will was real concerned that I was saying Asian Station and that Ellen was going to be upset with us. Jacob was going to be upset with us. We weren't making racist remarks. Asian. We talked about <laughs> the way that we've been made right with God. Expiation is God taking the guilt of our sins away. Propitiation is God taking the wrath against His sins away from us. Imputation is God giving us the very righteousness of Christ, which gives us justification, the right to stand in God's presence, whole, clean, guiltless, sinless, which equals salvation. That's what we looked at last week. And again, ain't no, ain't no wonder I'm full as a tick because that's the Bible's really pretty cool. So what we're looking at today is Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 21. If you have a Bible, it would be great if you opened it up or pushed your button or whatever you do there to get to Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, which will finish chapter 3, which is just amazing. But we're going to read this together. Um, I'll read it. You can read it with me silently. We won't go through the responsive reading thing again or the collaborative reading. If you would, as we read the Bible, we would like to stand in reverence to the Word of God and the God of the Word. We'll read this and we'll pray, then we'll jump into this thing. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let me pray. God, You have never failed to honor Your Word even when a donkey is speaking it. God, Your Word stands true. Your Word is powerful, and we trust in Your power, we trust in Your Word, we trust in Your Spirit to apply this Word to our lives today and to our life corporately. God, should there be someone sitting here this morning that does not know You, that does not have a saving relationship with You through Jesus Christ, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sins show them their great need for a great Savior, and I pray that they would see this morning that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened and opened up so that they can see the beauty of Jesus Christ and be drawn to You and made right with You through Him. And for those of us that do know You, God, by Your grace, just help us to understand and appropriate this great truth into our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I really do hope that you're a fraction as excited to receive this word as I am to give it. This is just so good. I mean, it's just so good. We're going to start in verse 27. And we're going to work our way through five verses. 
And then it's some application. So first, verse 27. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now, you start a sentence with then, you got to ask what was before it to necessitate that then. Let me read verses 21 through 26 so that you can see the path that we're going to follow that gets us to the then. Um, yeah, okay. I'll, let me walk through it instead of just reading it. We saw in verse 22 that the very righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Then in verse 24, we saw that we were justified by God's grace as a gift. And then verse 25 says that that gift is to be received by faith. And then in verse 26, God is shown to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So to boil it down to one word, what's the key? Faith. George Michael was right. Who'd have thunk it? I wouldn't have. And I still don't believe it. I don't believe he was right. So, to boil it all down, faith is the key. So then, to get to our verse... If all of this is received by faith, then what becomes of our boasting? Now, what does it mean to boast? Anybody ever boast any? Huh? Okay. Ethan has boasted. Uh, she's leaving. Yeah, I've boasted a little bit too. You ever hit the big shot in the basketball game and get up in your opponent's face and be like, Anybody ever say poof, you're a banana? Anybody go back to that far? No? Never, never, has anybody ever heard that? Poof, you're a banana? Maybe that was a Helen thing. <laughs> I really thought that went like that was universal. <laughs> okay. It was a way of saying in your face, okay? Poof, you're a banana. And let me tell you what, when I was seven, that was lethal. Poof, you're a banana. Write that down. Boasting. Let's recover here if we can. The Greek word for boasting, it occurs 12 times in the authorized version. I don't know if we can recover from that, right? And it's translated as boasting six times, rejoicing four times, and glorying once. And it literally means the act of glorying. So boasting is glorying in something. Now, you think that's important? Yes, it is, to give you the answer. Now, the Bible has quite a bit to say about boasting. The Bible has a lot to say about glory. Who alone is to receive glory? That's a softball question. That's an easy one. Who alone is supposed to receive glory? Can you go back into children's church and ask them? Yeah, ask them. We're failing at life. We got four gods back there, okay? Thank you. You're right. Only God is supposed to receive glory. So if we're talking about glorying, and here the, the mindset is that we're glorying in ourselves, we're glorying in our works, we're glorying in what we do or who we are, 
You think that's right? You think that's good? No, it's not good. Let me, let me read some verses about boasting, and you don't have to turn there. Um, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes, O Lord. You hate all evildoers. That's Psalm 5, 5. Psalm 12, 3 through 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. Psalm 75, 4 through 5. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Those are all Old Testament references. Let me give you some New Testament references, just a couple. 1 Corinthians 1, 28-31. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, in Jeremiah, by the way, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then 2 Corinthians 11.30 says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So what picture do we get of self-boasting here? Good or bad? Clearly bad. Boasting in oneself is not good, and God strictly and wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly condemns it. But He does say boasting in the Lord is called for. Boasting in the Lord is commended. Boasting in the Lord is actually commanded. So tie that in with our passage in Romans. Then what becomes of boasting? What kind of boasting do you think the Holy Spirit would be excluding here? Boasting in the Lord? That's not what he's referring to here. He's talking about prideful, arrogant boasting that makes us a part of doing something to gain, obtain, or achieve justification leading to salvation. We saw in our passage from the last two weeks that our justification is given by grace as a gift. So what could we boast in regarding that gift? Okay, Christmas is coming, right? Say you get that thing you always wanted. Are you going to prance around the living room and say, check me out. Look what I just did. I mean, it seems silly, doesn't it? You receive something that you had nothing to do with that somebody purchased for you. You open it up. You're like, well, that's what I did. I opened the present. And everybody's like, what are you doing? I'm boasting in something that I just received by no doing of my own. So what could we boast in regarding our justification? Can we boast in ourselves? Can we boast in something that we have done? And Paul says a big gigantic no. You can't boast in it. It's excluded. This justification that you've been given, this salvation that you've been given, you didn't do it. And you've got no way to boast about it. 
No reason to boast about it in and of yourself. And he explains further on by saying that our boasting in ourselves is excluded by a law. But what kind of law? He says, is it a law of works? No. Our boasting is excluded exactly because of the law. We can't boast in the law. We kept the law. Our boasting is excluded by a law of grace. Now, what's a law? My father-in-law found out what a law was last night. He got a speeding ticket. Yeah, 60 in a 40. You break the law, you get a ticket, right? And that's not necessarily the law that we're talking about here. So what kind of law excludes our boasting? What is a law? How about gravity? Is gravity a law? Yes, gravity is a law. What goes up must come down. How many times? Out of 100. If I stood here and threw this up, 100 times out of 100, it would come down. Right? Am I right? That's a law. There's no jet propulsion on this that's going to, what is it, pitch and yaw and all that stuff. There's nothing that can overcome gravity in this thing in and of itself. It's a law, okay? I want you to get that picture in your head when we're talking about the law or the principle that governs the exclusion of our boasting. And that law is a law of faith. We cannot boast in what we have done. Instead, there is a law of faith involved. Now, what does that mean? It's a given. Faith is a given. It has been proven to be true from the beginning of time. There is a law in place that is always true. Here in our passage, the law of faith excludes our boasting. How many times out of a hundred? A hundred times out of a hundred. Every single time. You don't believe me? Come into God's presence boasting about what you've done and see how justified you are to be there. You're like, well, I feel pretty good. I woke up this morning and I read my Bible and I prayed. I prayed for ISIS this morning. I did good stuff this morning. And then on the way to, to work, I even witnessed to the guy at the toll booth and told him that Jesus loved him. God should be really, really proud of me today. You think God loves you any more than He did before you did all that stuff? There is a law of faith that excludes boasting in the presence of God. Anytime you come into God's presence and boast about what you've done, you're not justified in your boasting. Now stay with me. That, that's important going forward. That means that the law of faith excludes our boasting all the time, every time, without exception. That means God has orchestrated things so that the only way to be right with Him is by faith in what Christ has done. So it is impossible for us to come into His presence and say, look what I did to earn my salvation. Look what I did to save myself. Look at how good I am. No wonder you love me. 
We cannot say those things. We cannot think those things. We can't even feel those things rightly because the law of faith proves true 100% of the time. Our boasting is excluded. And faith is the law in place to ensure that. It's like there's a giant neon sign in the presence of God that reads what? No boasting. Big giant neon sign and it's not there. It's like it's there. It's metaphorical. No boasting by order of the law of faith. Your boasting about your justification is excluded by the law of faith. Now, 4, verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Why would Paul reference the law of faith? For, now remember that word? It was one Sunday we had, we had four fours in our for this, for this, for this, for this. Because we, and we'll look at that in a second, who is we? Who is we here? Those who are justified, I believe is what he's saying. For we hold. Now, that word hold is incredibly important, not just here, but for the rest of the book of Romans. We need to look at that. For we hold. I'm not going to read all that. Okay? Rest easy. Logizomai. 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 Let's go with Logizomai. 41 occurrences. Translated as think nine times, impute eight times, reckon six times. I'm still convinced that Paul was Appalachian. I reckon so. <clears throat> to count five times, account, account, A-C-C-O-U-N-T, four times, suppose twice, reason once, number once, and then translated miscellaneously five times. Reckon, count, compute, calculate, count over, to take into account, to make an account of. Let me go on down. Um, 1C, to reckon or account, to reckon inward, to count up or weigh the reasons, to deliberate by reckoning up all the reasons together or infer, to consider, to take into account, to weigh, to meditate on, to suppose, to deem, to judge, to determine, purpose, to decide. Now, additional information. That's really what I wanted out of this. The Word deals with reality. If I logizomai or reckon that my bank book has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. Now, if I reckon it's got $25,000 and it's only got $25,000, that's not what this is talking about. Otherwise, I'm deceiving myself. The Word refers to facts not suppositions. So what you do is you go to the bank teller, you give them your account number, and you say, how much is in my account? I've not had anything that needs to clear for a month now. I've not any activity on this. What's in my account right now? Account number 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. They look, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Your account has $25 in it. So I go to my register that holds my account, and I fix my account to what is actually there. My account said I had $28.93. So I do minus $3.93 to get to $25 and I write in there, reconciled as per the bank, this is what my account has. Now I can't overstate this. This is very important. Reckon. Make an accounting of the fact that there's $25 there. This word refers to facts. 
not suppositions. Incredibly important. This is not Paul saying, looking at the evidence, this is the conclusion that I've come to, and I think it should be satisfactory to you. It's much more definitive than that. Facts, not suppositions. So Paul is saying that he is solidly asserting with apostolic authority received from the Lord Himself, just like we talked about in the Lord's table this morning, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We hold, we account, we reckon that, and we put it in our ledger that way. Now we covered justification in depth over the last two weeks, but just as a reminder, it means that you have the right and the proper standing to be in God's presence, clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. Expiation, propitiation, imputation, justification, salvation. Your guilt gone, God's anger gone, Christ's righteousness given to you, justified in the presence of God. God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and therefore you are saved. You have the proper standing to be in God's presence, and that proper standing is the very righteousness of Christ. It is a state of being right with God, justification is. And here in this verse, we're reminded that this happens by faith apart from works of the law. God declares us righteous not on the basis of anything we do. I'm going to read that again. God declares us righteous not on the basis of anything we do, but completely based on our faith in the finished work of Christ to obey and fulfill the law. Your deadly doings do not bring about justification, nor can they ever at all. Apart from, in this verse, does not imply in addition to, like this and then this and this combined, even though they're separate, it means standing in complete contrast to. Not this, but this. This is not compatible with this. The contrast is between working and having faith. Justification can only come one way, through faith without any reliance on our own works. You have to not only understand this, but it has to be received by a gift of revelation by the Holy Spirit Himself. You're not going to accumulate the mental know-how to say, okay, now I understand it, so now I can appropriate it into my account. No, it has to be a God-breathed. Adam was a created being laying made out of the dust of the earth. And what could Adam do? Nothing. And then God breathed into his nostrils the very breath of life. God breathed his spirit into Adam and Adam became a living soul. It's the same picture here. Your justification cannot be accomplished by anything that you do. We looked last week that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Dead. And unless God Himself acts out of grace and gives you the gift of justification, you cannot do it. But once He does give that gift, then we have to reckon it into our account. We have to fix our account. We have to fix the checkbook. 
before my meeting with God, not justified. God breathed, faith, <gasps> justified. Make sure that your account is up to date with God through a law of faith. And now comes what I think is an odd turn in this line of thinking. And we'll actually look at 29 and 30 together. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now to me that sounds weird. It's a weird thought to pop up here. Let me read it in context again, okay? I'm going to go back to verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So we're talking about boasting, how it's excluded by the law of faith, and then we see that we're justified by faith apart from works of the law, and we can enter that truth into our ledger as firm truth. Then Paul says, or is God the God of the Jews only? What? John Piper said it seemed like he could just as easily have said, and did you have eggs for breakfast? It seems like an out-of-place question. Faith? Law? Boast? No, don't boast. Law of faith? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Does it, does it not make sense to anybody but me? Because I'm, I'm sitting there going, what? Where did that come from? Let me tell you where that came from. The question seems to break the flow of thought, but it really doesn't. Paul has been playing with the word law since well before our text today, but in today's text, starting in verse 27, we see the word law four times just in verses 27 and 28. So he's really bringing in the capital L law, the Jewish law, the Torah, the law of Moses, as a centerpiece of the conversation. Who had the law? The Jews. Okay? We've seen that in the first three chapters of Romans that the Jews having the law was of benefit and of no benefit, right? What benefit then has the Jew? Oh, much in every way. They've been given the very oracles of God. Then what is the benefit you being a Jew? Oh, it doesn't benefit you at all. So he's been talking about law a lot up till now. So if the Jews have the law, and you're trying to juxtapose something against the law, what is the opposite of law here? Starts with an F, ends with TH. Thank you, faith. So what Paul is doing here, he's setting the law against faith to, compare, to contrast them. Compare is not a good word. And if you want to contrast God saving Gentiles and thus everyone, you contrast it to Him just saving who? Jews, okay? And if he's going to save everyone, he's going to do it the same way with everyone, right? He's not going to save the Jews using the law and then save everyone else apart from the law. And the Jews were vehement, and he says it in this passage, kind of in passing, that there's how many gods? There's only one God, okay? The Shema, 
Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God who is Lord over all the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein, the psalmist would say. The Jewish proclamation would be that there's, there are no other gods other than the one God who they worship as creator and sustainer of the universe. To refuse worship to this one God is the greatest offense. And actually they would say the greatest commandment is to what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The one God. And there's only one God. So now, Paul says, this one God, this God who is one, will only save in one way. And it would not be right to save everyone the same way, but only give the law to the Jews. Are you with me? So if I'm going to save everybody the same way, and that way was the law, and I only give the law to the Jews, is that right? I'm going to let everybody in the door, but the door is going to be locked, and I'm only going to give the keys to a few people, but I'm going to say, everybody come. Would that be right? And I tell everybody with keys, lock the door behind you. And everybody's come up and say, hey, you told me to come, but I, 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 I can't get in. I don't have a key. That wouldn't be right. So what Paul is doing here, what he's in his reasoning, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says that the one true God, in giving the law to the Jews, was not him giving them the means of salvation. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Well, no, He's not the God of the Jews. Even the Jews would say He's not the God of the Jews only. He'd say He's the God of the Gentiles too. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of the one true God, says plainly here that since God is one, He will justify both Jew and Gentile, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, through what? Our one ingredient. Faith. And no other way. Everyone for all time in all places, will always and only be justified through one thing. And what is that? Faith. Period. That's what Paul's saying in this passage. That's why he asks, is God the God of the Jews only? Because if He's the God of everyone, He's not going to give the Jews something that He doesn't make available to everyone. Now, verse 31. Since God is one... Oh, sorry, that's not 31. I got ahead of myself. Do we then overthrow the law... By this faith, by no means, exclamation point. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now this brings it all together. So if you're a Jew and you're reading this letter, you come to this point and you have to be thinking, well, Paul, why don't you just throw out the books of Moses? Why don't you just punt the law and create your own little religion that's based on something besides what God has already revealed to us through 4,000 years of history? Why don't you just throw it all away, Paul, and tell us to not worship the one true God who gave us the law. You obviously don't think much of our law, Paul, or the God who gave us this law. But now listen, Paul was thoroughly Jewish. Paul had grown up memorizing the first five books of our Bible. Paul knew that law very well. And so for somebody to come to him and say, do you not care about the law, Paul? The Jewish reader had to be cringing at all of this, wondering what good 4,000 years of biblical history meant if it didn't mean that God wanted to use the law to reach people. 
But Paul steps up and says, no, 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 no. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith that justifies us? Now we've covered this by no means phrase before in Romans, but Paul is saying emphatically, now let me read it again, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And then this statement, may it never cross your mind and may that thought never come to be. May you see that that thought is as completely as impossible as me creating the universe. That's how emphatic that by no means phrase is. He's trying to say this cannot happen. What cannot happen? We cannot overthrow the law by this faith. So what good is the law? Well, it seems like in this statement that it's pretty important. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, wait a minute. What are we doing with the law here? Are we discounting it? Are we discarding it? Is it not important? Is it important? Does our faith cancel it out or does our faith uphold it? We do not overthrow the law. Well, we need to know what overthrow means. Oh, I hit the button again. Dagnabbit. Throughout the month of November, I'm going to need you to hit that button, Andrew. That's my last slide, I'm afraid. There we go. The word overthrow means to destroy, to do away with, to abolish, to render idle, unemployed, inactivate, inoperative to cause a person or a thing, so to cause the law to have no further efficiency, to deprive of force, influence, power, to cause to cease, to put an end to, to do away with, to annul, to abolish, to cease, to pass away, be done away, to be severed from, separated from, discharged from, loosed from anyone, to terminate all intercourse with one. And we do not do this with the law. Now, this should start bells ringing off in your head, so I'm supposed to keep the law. Stay with me. Do we overthrow the law? Do we inactivate the law with our faith? Do we terminate all intercourse with the law by our faith? No, Paul says. We uphold the law, but how do we uphold the law? We uphold the law by this faith. So what does that mean? The word uphold means to establish a thing or cause it to stand. So how could our faith establish the law or cause it to stand? Now, we're going to finish out this and I'm going to ask you two questions to answer that one question. So if you're graphing your sentences today, question question, question, okay? These two questions will answer this question. And that first question is what? How could our faith establish the law or cause it to stand? Now, the two questions to answer that question is first, what was the purpose of the law? And second, what is our faith what is our faith in to justify us? So, main question. How could our faith establish the law or cause it to stand? The two questions to answer that question, what is the purpose of the law and what is our faith in to justify us? Stay with me. So, 
If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 3. And I don't have that up here. It's too long. I didn't want to fiddle with it. Which is a biblical term, by the way, fiddling. Poof, you're a banana. You didn't know that, but now you do. Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 19 through 29. By the way, Galatians would be a great companion book to read and study as you're going through Romans. If you want to make Sunday mornings your study in Romans and complement it with something else, the book of Galatians would be great to study alongside the book of Romans. Let me just read this. Galatians 3, 19 through 29. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Again, I'm starting 3.19, Galatians. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But... The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now I am in no way, shape, or form going to try to explain all of that this morning. But in all that information, I want to pull a couple of things out to answer these questions that we're talking about. And the first question was... Anybody remember? What was the purpose of the law? That was the first of the two questions to answer the one question. And I don't mean to be confusing, but I'm sorry. What was the purpose of the law? Verse, verse 19 of Galatians 3 grabs that bull by the horns. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. And then in verse 24 we see that the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now let's piece that together. Our sins, our offenses, our transgressions were piling up after the fall in Eden. And then God sent the law to show us our sins and to serve as a guardian until Christ would come. Guardian. That word guardian can be translated as tutor, T-U-T-O-R, and it signified, it meant that tutor, that guardian, was the slave that led children back and forth to school to ensure their safety. The role is that of one who oversees and gets someone safely to a destination. We're going to start at home, and I'm going to get you to school. We call them people bus drivers today, okay? Right, Rodney? Rodney's had a little... Sorry. Someone who oversees and gets someone safely to a destination. The law was sent to show us that we could not keep it. The law was sent to show us how bad off we really are. It would show us what God desired, 
but it would also show us that we are helpless to meet those requirements. So that's the first question, what was the purpose of the law? Now, staying in the Galatians passage, let's answer that second question, which was, what is our faith in to justify us? Go back to Galatians 3, look at verses 22 through 26. But the Scripture, God's Word, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through what? It's our one ingredient. Faith. So our faith to justify us is in the person of Christ and His work. The purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ. Christ came and our justification results when we put our faith in Him. So we're kept under the guardianship of the law until the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law was given as a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And that's in perfect harmony, in perfect concert with our Romans passage. So now back to the original question that we used the two questions to answer. And that question was, how could our faith establish the law or cause it to stand? Now that we've seen that the purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ and that our faith is in the finished work of Christ, we can see that our faith in Christ shows that the law did exactly what it was established to do. And what was it established to do? Lead us to Christ. And what is our faith in to justify us? The finished work of Christ. So did the law do its job? If you are a believer, the law served its purpose. It led you to Christ. So when we put our faith in Christ, we establish the law. We uphold the law. Because we look back and say, the law brought me here. The law showed me how much of a sinner I am. The law showed me how incapable I was of saving myself so that I turned my eyes to Jesus, put my faith in Him, and now I'm justified. Does that make sense? The law was given to lead us to Christ like a tutor leads a kid to school. And now that our faith is in Christ, the law has done its job. So our faith, so our faith establishes, upholds the law. It does not overthrow it. It fulfills it. And we're going to spend most of chapter 4 expanding on that. And we'll see that the Old Testament does not contradict this law of faith. So as you prepare for next week, starting in chapter 4, we're going to talk about Abraham next week and how he was justified. So let me wrap it all up with some application. First, what's our main ingredient? Thank you. That was, that was strong. Thank you. Faith is our main ingredient. If we're going to be justified by faith and faith alone, 
That was the cry of the reformers, right? Faith alone. How important is faith? If there's only one way to be justified, how important is it? It is of the utmost importance. So what do we do with this faith? How do we attain this faith? How do we obtain this faith? Do we have to work to get this faith? Well, no, it's the very opposite of what he said so far. You can't work to obtain it. Listen, whether you are saved or unsaved this morning, whether you are justified or not justified in God's presence this morning, there's only one way to be justified, and that justification is through faith. How do we obtain faith? Romans 10, 17. You want application? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the Word, through the Word of Christ. What benefit has the Jew then? Much in every way. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. What can those oracles of God do? Those oracles of God can produce faith in you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Let me tell you something. If you go back to chapter 1, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Let me tell you something that's happening in this room this morning. The Word of God is working. Not my eloquent delivery with this thing that's really sticking out today. And I can't figure out why. It's not me. The Word of God is powerful. And you say, well, I don't have faith to believe. What the Word is going to do, it's going to get inside of you and it's going to start producing. And the first fruit that the Word produces in anybody is faith. You say, well, I don't believe it. Be patient because God does incredible things through the power of His Word. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel makes it possible for you to believe. The Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament. You want to cultivate your faith? The Bible says that God has allotted to each a measure of faith. You want to know what to do with that faith? The Word of God makes that faith active. So, so you're sitting here this morning and you're saved. and You say, well, I do have faith. I do believe that I'm justified by faith through a gift of God alone. Listen, Pour the Scriptures into yourself. And that faith, I don't think that faith grows. I think we just, it's, it's kind of like an atom bomb. You've got one little atom that you split. You don't need more. You just need to know how to use what you got. You know how you learn how to use what you got? Through the Bible. So first application point, saved or unsaved this morning, go to the Word of God because therein lies the power to activate your faith to strengthen that faith, to develop that faith. Second point of application. Now here could get real sticky. Now that you have God's favor, Christian, are you ready? Okay. You're justified. You have faith in Christ. You believe that His finished work has accomplished your redemption. Now what? Here you go. Second point of application. Pursue the perfection of the law by the power of the Spirit 
with your faith in the finished work of Christ. I'm going to read what to me is a devastating verse. Short. Matthew 5.48. Ring a bell with anybody? You'll, you'll know it when you hear it. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Peter would repeat that in his letter. Anybody in here got the perfection thing down yet? Now listen, Christian. Listen, believer. You're justified how? One ingredient, main ingredient. I'm going to ask you until you answer. Faith, thank you very much. You are justified by faith. Now that you are justified by faith, you are to seek the perfection of the law. That's your second application point. Good luck with that. Y'all let me know how it goes. That is, that is our call, Christian. You are to seek the perfection that the law demands and commands now that you are justified by faith. Now, does that mean that you need to read the law and not read, not, not wear things that are mixed fabrics? Now listen, this is what the world is accusing us of today. Why can you say it's not alright to be a homosexual, but you can sow two different kinds of seed in your field when the law tells you that you can't do that? Anybody heard that argument recently? Why do you get to pick and choose which laws you get to keep and which laws you don't have to keep? Anybody heard that recently? It's out there. If you haven't heard it, you're not listening very well. You are to seek the perfection of the law as briefly as I can. There are three components to the Old Testament law. There's a ceremonial law which had to do with how they sacrificed things what they did in their worship. There was a national law which had to do with the nation of Israel and God was their king. It was a theocracy. God ruled them. And then there was a moral law. Three components in that law. What is still binding to us today? Do we put offerings on the altar? Do we sacrifice animals for our sins? No. If you do, stop. Okay? Okay? It's not okay. You know, the neighbors are going to call PETA on you. P-E-T-A. Not PETA Millard. See, the Hunger Games jokes go well. Poof, you're a banana. People don't get it. Culturally relevant, right? Um, okay, okay, okay. So, the ceremonial law, we don't need it anymore. Why don't we need that anymore? Everybody's like, oh. Because Christ fulfilled those. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to do what? To fulfill it. All those ceremonial laws had to do with Christ coming. They were the shadow. He was the substance. Are we culturally, civically, the nation of Israel today? No. I live in America. And I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. Right? So I don't live in Israel. So those national laws, those civic laws, also do not apply to me. Jesus fulfilled those too, by the way, perfectly. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. That moral component of the law is obviously still active. We still shouldn't kill people. We still shouldn't lie, cheat, and steal, covet, take the name of the Lord in vain. We should not do those things. The other two components are past for us, and they do not apply to us. You say, well, that's awful convenient. The world says that's awful convenient. 
but it is biblical sound truth. I am to seek the perfection of the moral law of God now as a believer. What's that mean for the Sabbath? Jesus said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean for what we eat and what we don't eat? Jesus said, it's not what goes in you that makes you impure. It's what comes out of you. It's what's in your heart that defiles you. But we are to, as our second application point, to seek the perfection of the law of God. The moral component of the law of God. Those other two components are not binding to us. That's as plain as I can say it. And I'm more than willing to talk about that while we eat. So we're to seek the perfection of the law. Now, third application point. Stop trying to keep the law so that you can earn God's favor. What's the caveat there? To earn God's favor. We are to seek the moral perfection of the law, application point two, but third application point, stop trying to keep the law in order to earn God's favor. Whether you're saved or unsaved here this morning, you cannot keep the law and satisfy God. You cannot keep the law and make God say, okay, you're fine now. Christian, you cannot keep the law and have God pat you on the head and say, good boy, your goodness makes me like you more. And if you're unsaved, don't you dare prance into God's presence and say, I've kept your law since birth. I've done real well there. I ain't never killed anybody. I've never cheated on my wife. I'm not even married. It's not what it's about. Let me read a passage, a couple of passages. Stop trying to keep the law to earn God's favor. Galatians 3.3. 3. You don't have to turn there. Paul says to the Galatians, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Galatians 5.16-18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, capital S, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, angelic choir, sing, you are not under the law. Praise God that I'm not under the law. Let me read those two passages together and we'll be done. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are set against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Christian, stop trying to earn God's favor. You have it in Christ. Seek the moral perfection of the law, but do it by the Spirit, not by your earthly striving, not by your efforts, not by your doings. Come to the Spirit and say, I cannot do this. I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do. And listen, when I got into this application point, I'm thinking, man, I, there's a lot to cover here. Chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 of Romans is going to talk about this very thing. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? We're going to spend probably, literally, at least a year talking about that very thing. 
So I'm not going to get into it this morning, but the answer is not keeping the law, seeking the moral perfection of the law, yes, by the power of the Spirit, not the power of your flesh. And that is freedom. Paul would tell the Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't make yourself a slave to a, a yoke of slavery and bondage trying to do the right thing in your own power. You cannot do it. And listen, non-believer here this morning, you cannot earn God's favor by what you do. You can only receive justification by faith alone. And believer, the righteous man shall live by what's our main ingredient? Faith. Faith in what? Faith in the ability of the Spirit of God to do what you cannot do in and of yourself. It really does. You really do. Just got to have faith. And God's rigged it that way. God's written it up that way irrevocably for eternity. And that is fantastic news. Let's pray. God, I trust your way. I believe you. I rest in you. I rest in you for my justification. I put my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus who was God in the flesh, who is God in the flesh, came, lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law that I could not fulfill, took my sins upon Himself and carried them to a cross and did away with them. He was dead. And He came back to life. God, Your very Word, Your very Spirit, Jesus Himself, raised from the dead so that I might be justified, so that I might have new life. And it looks like this. I'm a sinner. I deserve the cross, but Jesus, You paid the penalty on the cross, took my sins away, and You rose again so that I might have new life. We sang it in our song this morning, God. Of the cross they nailed You to that could not hold You, now You're making all things new by the power of Your risen life. May we all in this room this afternoon place our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and believe that He is God enfleshed and enthroned, reigning and ruling forever. One day we will stand before Him and He will be the judge. And His question will not be, what did you do? His statement will either be, I knew you or I did not know you. You either placed your faith in me or you did not. May we place our faith in Christ and may we seek to live this Christian life by faith in the power of your Spirit to do what we cannot do. Your very Spirit who you will give to us, we will have faith in Christ, who will enable us to do your living, your glorifying in this flesh, even now. May it be so, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us for... A benediction, which has got to be your favorite part of the service now, right? Because it means that I'm done talking. And I do prefer the Jude one. You may come across this if you're reading Jude. Church, listen. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all the people of God said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.